This is the On Humans podcast with your host, Ilari Mäkelä. Anthropology is full of wonderful stories of just how much cultures can differ, but sometimes the opposite happens. My favorite example of this comes from Ireneus Eibel Eibersfeld, the Austrian ethologist who recounted a story um, about a discussion he had with a recently contacted tribe. So after inquiring into the life ways of the, of the tribe, he asked them if they would want to ask him something. And they did. They quote, Does it ever happen amongst your people that someone who is married has sex with someone else? Now, apparently, this bizarre occurrence was relatively common amongst the, the tribe's people, and uh, it caused a lot of misery and conflict when it did happen. And I'm, I'm sure we can draw many lessons from this, but the lesson that I want to focus on is that with all its beauty and ugliness for better or worse, romantic love goes deeper than culture. But what exactly does go deeper than culture? I mean, something does, I believe. But I've never been really satisfied when I hear folk theories about what is the biologically natural mating system for humans. It's not that there aren't many folk theories out there. I can give a list. There are those who say that we evolved to be like bonobos and have pansexual relations with everyone without any exclusive sexual access to anyone. There are those who think that we are gorillas, where males are naturally inclined to gather a large harem of females to whom he will have exclusive sexual access to. And then there are those romantics who look to swans and say that lifelong monogamy is what is natural for our species. Beyond animal analogies, there are those who look into Darwinian logic and say that, at least for heterosexual lovers, there is a fundamental compatibility that emerges from our evolutionary past, the fact that males are programmed to want more sex and females more emotional connection. Helen Fisher thinks that none of these claims is correct, at least not the whole story, and she speaks with some authority. Trained as an anthropologist, Fisher has read extensively about romantic love across the globe, but she has also become a pioneering figure in the neuroscience of love. And more recently, as the chief science advisor to Match.com, she has been able to do huge, huge studies on the American population, representative samples of the American population. It's kind of samples that normally would be completely out of reach due to financial reasons from, from typical psychologists. And so I invited Fisher on the podcast to discuss the nature of sex, love, and monogamy. This is one of the most wide-ranging conversations I've had, and it is the longest one. We start by discussing Fisher's theory about the so-called natural mating system for humans, which is not polygamy, but neither is it lifelong strict monogamy. Of course, what is quote-unquote natural for us is not necessarily what people want from their individual lives, so I was also very happy to talk about Fisher's research into what makes lifelong monogamous marriages work when people do want them to work. We also discuss issues such as what happens to mating when women and not men amass large wealth in societies, and why some antidepressants might blunt feelings of romantic love. The latter topic is, is very important, I believe, but it's also worth noting that we are not recommending anyone to drop their medication, especially without first consulting with their doctor. If this is a topic that you're interested in, though, for yourself or for someone close to you, and you want to have more information before talking about it with a medical professional, I have left some relevant links in the show notes. In the show notes, you will also find a full list of technical terms and names mentioned in this conversation. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. I bring to you Helen Fisher. Professor Helen Fisher, welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you. 
I think it was uh, during my undergrad years that I first encountered the claim that uh, romantic love is, is hardly a human universal. It's rather the invention of 12th century European troubadours. I have to say that I kind of struggled ever taking that very seriously, but should I? When people say that this was some invention of the troubadours in the 12th century, I mean, they've never read ancient Egyptian poetry uh, or Sumerian poetry or Arabian you know, I mean, almost everywhere in the world, there's a Romeo and Juliet story. There's a famous one in uh, China. I think it's called The Jade Goddess. I, I wrote about it in one of my books. And it's about a, a young girl from a, a rich, uh, noble family who falls in love with the uh, gardener. And he is a good at carving jade. And they run off together. And of course, this really annoys her family. And, you know, they finally catch them. He gets away. They bury her alive in the family garden. And when you take a look around the world at, at the incredible amount of just basic artifacts, you would never, ever assume that this was in the 12th, started in the 12th century. What about anthropologically when people have studied romantic love around the world? Do they find it everywhere? Yes, they do. And in fact, one of the first person was Bill Jankobiak. And it was interesting. I was talking with Bill years and years ago. He ended up looking now over 200 cultures and he found evidence of romantic love in every one. But when I first met him at a conference and I was asking him about romantic love in China and he said, no, 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 they, they, they don't they don't do that. And I was staggered. And then he wrote me, went back to China doing more of his um, ethnographic work. And apparently he asked his, his assistant whether um, the assistant had ever been in love or knew no, what this was about. And the assistant, I'm not sure what the assistant, assistant started to cry. <laughs> but either he or she, I can't remember the whole story, um, said, oh, yes, I mean, my partner left me. I'm bereft. I don't know what to do. Et cetera, et cetera. And then Bill began to realize, oh, yes. And so then he did. He, his first um, big book on this was he collected data on, I think, 186 uh, cultures. It may have been 168 cultures. It was a long time ago. And he found some evidence of romantic love in every single one. And there were various cultures where he asked and, and people would say, no, 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 we don't believe in that. And then they will say to him, Think of it, you know, I knew this guy a couple of years ago who hung himself, you know, from a palm tree because his girlfriend wouldn't marry him. And so, I mean, when I started this, people really did not believe that this was a brain system. And we've been able to prove that it is a, a very powerful brain system that evolved millions of years ago. I've heard you say that the more you've studied the brain, the more you've thought that actually this is not, love is not even an emotion, it's a drive. What do you mean by Well, I had um, assumed that it was an emotion, you know, or a whole series of emotions that go from high to low and swinging this way and that, from jealousy to joy to despair to uh, thrill, et cetera, et cetera. And so I remember where I was when I was walking through, actually through um, Washington Square Park, thinking to myself, why don't I put people in brain scanners and, and, uh, and see if... Uh, I can find the brain circuitry of this. And I did assume at that time that it was an emotion or a series of emotions from high to low. Anyway, when we put the people in the brain scanner, the, my first study with my colleagues, uh, we put 17 people into the scanner who had just fallen madly and happily, happily in love. And um, 
as it turns out, sure, there was activity in various limbic areas to, uh, orchestrated by the a part of the emotions and certainly part of the cerebral cortex where you do your thinking and decision making. But all of these people we put in the machine showed activity in a tiny little factory near the very base of the brain called the ventral tegmental area or VTA. And that little brain region is in the whole drive part of the brain. And it makes dopamine, produces dopamine, and then sends dopamine uh, to many brain regions, giving you that elation, that focus, that motivation, the optimism, the intense craving of, of romantic love. And what you, you say, is it a drive? It lies right next to the hypothalamus, which orchestrates thirst and hunger. The hypothalamus and the pituitary lying right next to the ventral tegmental area, and they orchestrate a lot of the fundamental drives, including thirst and hunger. And when I first saw that, I began to realize, oh, wow, sure, there's lots of emotions involved, but it's basically a human drive, a drive that evolved millions of years ago to just make you fixate on a particular individual and stick with them at least long enough to send their DNA into tomorrow. Can I ask, actually, when you say that you study romantic love in the brain scanner, do you mean it in the broad sense of love between, you know, romantically attracted individuals or in the narrow sense when you divide love into three components, where there is the sex drive, which there is the romantic uh, drive and the, the, the passion, and then there is the deep attachment. When we're talking about romantic love being associated with the BTA, do you mean it in, in the broad sense of, of having all of those three or, or in the narrow sense of being the number two of those? In the, in the, it's in the narrow sense, number two. And in fact, when I would put people in the machine and I would coach them on what to think about, because you, you can't have any surprises in this machine. Uh, you can't have people being fearful of what's going to happen next. They got to know what they're doing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and um, it's not a nice place to be in, I have to say. No, it's not a nice place to be. And I'm claustrophobic and I've always felt terrible sympathy, but they want to go in the machine. They're fascinated. I mean, I would put big flyers around on various campuses around New York and I would say, have you just fallen happily in love? Please, please help science, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, the sex drive, is predominantly orchestrated by testosterone in both men and women. Romantic love, which is the one that I initially studied, is largely uh, orchestrated by the dopamine system in the ventral tegmental area. And the third brain system of attachment, uh, we've located some of the basic places where that is uh, generated. And one of them is called the ventral pallidum. And the this third brain system of attachment is really orchestrated by oxytocin and vasopressin. So Basically, there are three different systems, largely orchestrated by three different neurochemical systems. Sex drive gets you out there looking for a whole range of partners. I mean, you can have sex with somebody uh, without ever being in love with them. Romantic love enables you to focus your mating energy on just one at a time. Uh, and then that third brain system of attachment enables you to stick with this person <laughs> at least long enough to raise a single child through infancy. So the three different brain systems, I'm very glad you mentioned it. And they can really come in any order. Some people assume, oh, it starts with sex, then you fall in love, and then you feel the deep attachment. That's not true. These are brain systems. They're not phases. And so a lot of people can fall madly in love with somebody that they've never had sex with, and in fact, fall madly in love with somebody who they never have sex with. Or you can begin by feeling deep attachment to a part of somebody in school, somebody at work, somebody in your social group. And um, 
and only two years later begin to court them and then trigger that brain circuitry for romantic love and then have sex with them. So there are three different systems. They can operate in any pattern. And of course, I regard all three as important to a good marriage. Hmm. I cannot resist the temptation to ask. I mean, you have your, your, your tripartite theory of the brain systems of love. We interviewed Robert Sternberg recently. He has his own tripartite theory of love, where love is a component of liking, of passion, and of commitment. Now, I don't want to suggest that this is necessarily in any way uh, an opposite view that needs to be argued uh, with, with your view. But what, what, what do you think of Sternberg's triangular theory of love? Is it something that, you know... He's a psychologist. I'm a brain mm. scale. And mm. um, when you talk about those three, the commitment, I think, I mean, when you're making a commitment to somebody, you probably feel deeply attached to them. And the brain circuitry for attachment, the oxytocin vasopressin uh, system is is cranking up to, mm. to so that people express the commitment that he's talking about. In terms of the passion, I don't know whether he means romantic passion or sexual passion. Mm. Mm. Um, so, probably both or either. Mm. Yeah, and and in that, and I, I they are different, um, mm. but they they go together. I mean, you know, when you have sex with somebody, any stimulation of the genitals drives up the dopamine system and you can fall in love with them. And then with orgasm, there's a real flood of oxytocin and vasopressin and you can feel deep attachment to them. So I'd have to ask him whether he means a sexual passion or romantic passion, but he certainly is right. I mean, I do think that that um, in, in good relationships, it's nice to have both. And what was the third one that he talked about? So it was commitment, liking, and passion. Uh, liking. Uh, my guess is that the liking is also associated with the oxytocin system right. of attachment. I mean, when you like somebody, I do think that you feel a, a sense of attachment to them and even commitment to them. So right. my guess is, you know, so many, so many of people have, have intuitively figured this out and then they divide it up the way they want to divide it up. I like a great deal of psychology. I'm just trying to add the brain component. I'm not ever trying to dislodge or disprove them. Psychology is good. There's a lot of great psychology, but I'm trying to add the second half of the puzzle. What creates that sense of liking? I think it's oxytocin and vasopressin. What creates that passion? Well, if he's talking about the sex drive, it's going to be testosterone and dopamine. If he's talking about romantic love, it's going to be just dopamine. But that's the underlying physiological mechanisms that are creating Sternberg three the three aspects of of love. He's a psychologist. I'm a neuroscientist and anthropologist. We can go together. Uh, two technical questions about uh, about the brain science of love that I do want to ask. One is that you mentioned that the sex drive is related to testosterone. I think that there's a kind of easy fallacy to jump from that conclusion to the conclusion. Sorry, from that premise to the conclusion that well, because men have significantly higher levels of testosterone, they also need to have a significantly higher sex drive. Uh, Kind of, I first of all heard you say that that's not the case. My question is, um, I guess, first of all, what's the data on that not being the case? Because I also do believe it not being the case, but what's the data on it? But also, secondly, how can it be that if it is related to testosterone so deeply, why is it not so that because men just in brute terms have more testosterone yeah. in their bodies, they also end up having a higher sex drive? Okay. So, first of all, it's not the amount of a chemical 
it's the amount of receptors that receive it uh-huh. in which parts of the brain. It's much more complicated than just levels. That's why I never say levels of dopamine, levels of serotonin, levels of testosterone. I say the activity of these chemical systems. You know, it's easy to say uh, uh, levels, but that's not accurate. Women definitely do have less testosterone, but that does not mean that the activity in their neural systems is any less active. So we got it right there. Now, young people, you know, it's very interesting. Male sex drive, I think, comes on a little sooner. What I have read, and I don't study this, but what I've read when I study other things is that male sex drive really almost peaks uh, in their uh, late teens, 19, 20, 21, whereas female um, sexuality uh, and sex drive apparently peaks a little bit later, around age 25. Now, I could be wrong, but this is what I've read. In which case, when you, most psychologists are studying teenagers, they're studying people in colleges and they're studying yes, people yes, in colleges and, 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 you know, they're studying 145, um, you know, undergrads uh, who are 18, 19, 20. And of course you're going to get whatever your sample population is, you're going to get uh, the data that says that. And then, um, I study huge populations. I mean, I have data on 55,000 Americans, ages 18 to 71 plus. And I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But the bottom line is, it's so interesting that, you know, a lot of middle-aged women apparently lose a lot of their interest in their husband. And that is apparently relatively standard. However, it is my prediction, and I don't recommend it, but if those women just got a different partner, their sex drive would come back. In other words, they're bored, they're with somebody who's alcoholic or emotionally abusive or, or too busy or everything has become so standard uh, and, um, and they're bored. So you've got to take into uh, account the environment. There's a lot of women after menopause actually become much more sexual and they become more sexual because after menopause, with menopause levels of, of, of um, estrogen are declining and so are levels of testosterone but the estrogen declines so much more than the testosterone that the testo- testosterone begins to be unmasked and express itself and you will mm-hmm. see middle-aged women becoming more assertive uh, even more ambitious a little more hair on the face putting more weight on around the stomach which are all testosterone related and so you often hear about older women who are more randy and sexually active than their partners. And so you've got to take a look at, at the sex drive across the entire uh, spectrum of, of the human lifespan. Hmm. And you've got to also do it in other cultures. There are some wonderful studies of all hunter-gatherer people. And there's one study of, I think it's 96, traditional historical hunting and gathering herding societies. And scientists have done meta-analysis looking at all these mm. cultures. They ended up finding that in over 80% of these societies or 75% of these societies, when they went in and asked men and women who was the more sexual, they agreed that women had were just as sexual as men. Now, in hunting and gathering societies, women are very economically powerful. Oh. They commute to work to gather their fruits and vegetables. They come home with 60 to 80% of the evening meal very regularly, always over 50% of it. And they are regarded as sexually, socially, and economically powerful. And in those cultures, they seem to express the same degree of sexuality as men. Then we began to settle down on the farm. 
you know, men's roles became much more important, moving the rocks, filling the trees, plowing the land, taking the produce off to local markets and coming home with the equivalent of money. And women's roles became less powerful. They couldn't go off, off the farm and do their foraging. Their new job was having lots of babies to help them pick wheat, prune, prepare the evening meals, etc. And along with the rise of that, about 10,000 years ago, we see a whole lot of beliefs about a woman, what a woman is. She's not as sexual as men. Uh, virginity at marriage, arranged marriages, a man is the head of the household, um, till death do us part. And so for the last 10,000 years, we've had this belief, and Darwin had it too. He thought women were very nice and cuddly, but mm-hmm. he, he didn't think they were as smart as men or as business-wise business as men, and probably not as sexual. And so you've got to take so many things into account before you can, with any kind of confidence, say that, that men are more sexual. And so, as you know, I'm chief science advisor to the dating site Match, Match.com. And every year, I don't deal with their site, I deal with their science. And every single year I do, so this is like my 12th year, I'm going to go down to Dallas next week, actually, and discuss it with them. But Every year, I and my colleagues create about 200 questions. And we do not poll the matched members. It's a national representative sample of singles based on the U.S. Census. We collect data on 5,000-plus people around the country, black, white, Asian, Latino, gay, straight, rural, suburban, urban, everywhere, and every sexual orientation. And uh, as it turns out, men fall in love faster than women do. They fall in love more often than women do. When men meets a woman that he is in love with, he introduces her to friends and family sooner. Men are two and a half times more likely to kill themselves when a relationship is over. But one one thing that I found, now, men are more interested in one-night stands than women are. And so that's another thing what people say, oh, well, that's because men want to just screw around. So I asked men and women in this Singles in America dating study, why do you do a one-night stand? And men were three times more likely than women to say, I do it because I think it will lead to a relationship. Really? Isn't that fascinating? We don't understand men in this culture. We don't understand women in this culture. And we have no idea what we're talking about when we say that men have a higher sex drive. None at all. Fascinating. Fascinating. I mean, I also remember you saying um, that when you've done brain scanning experiments on around the world, you, the, the romantic love, neural footprint of romantic love is the same whether you look at men or women or whether you look at heterosexual or homosexual. That it it's is- exactly the same. It's, I mean, this is a system like hunger and thirst. Everywhere in the world, doesn't matter whether you're from Nigeria or Beijing or Tierra del Fuego or Toronto or Finland, this is a basic brain system and it doesn't matter. Bottom line is, everywhere in the world, people feel love. Mm-hmm. Find for love, live for love, kill for love, and die for love. Basic brain system. Uh, we did exactly the same study in Beijing as we did in New York, and we found exactly the same activity in this ventral tegmental area. I have to ask, were there any cultural modulations? Because I, I, uh, I was actually a student member in a cultural neuroscience lab in, in Peking University for a while. And so, I mean, I've seen like paper after paper after paper of how culture can modulate early visual perception and you know they're the classic difference east asians look more at the periphery of the image westerners more at, at the focal object in the image and, and i mean it just the list goes on and on and on 
So um, is it really so that, that, that the list kind of stops at romantic love, that that's something where you basically don't find cultural modulation? Or is it so that you do find cultural modulation of the brain activity, but you would say that it's, it's peripheral in a sense that it's not central to what you see in the brain when you study the box? Culture always plays a role. Now, the basic feeling of romantic love is the same. It's actually pretty much similar to the same attraction system in, in rats and prairie voles and sheep. This is a basic brain system in animals. I call it uh, uh, animal magnetism. Yes, thank you, animal magnetism. I just made that one up, but it's but it but it's true. So, but culture always is going to mold how that brain system is affected. Now, let's give an example of religiosity. There's a gene in the serotonin system linked with religiosity. It's also called uh, self-transcendence, the ability to believe in something way outside of human experience. Mm. That is a specific chain in the serotonin system linked with religiosity. Now, you grow up in New York City, you're likely to be a Christian. You grow up in Riyadh uh, in Saudi Arabia, you're going to be a Muslim. Uh, you grow up in Bhutan, you're going to be a Buddhist. So in other words, these are basic brain systems, and then the culture molds them. So in other words, romantic love hasn't changed for four million years, probably more. But courtship has, and courtship will continue to change. I mean, today, most people are meeting their first date on the, on the internet. Well, in my day, there was no internet, and so we met at school or work or through friends, et cetera. So courtship will always change. Feeling of romantic love will remain. It's primordial, it's adaptable, and it's eternal. It's going to be around as long as we survive as a species and probably a lot longer. Well, that's a great uh, way to transition to the next broad topic. Because I think that in a way, all the, the, the point about the romantic law being the invention of 12th century troubadours, it's, it's almost a straw man. I mean, some people might believe it, but as I said, I, I, I even struggle to take it seriously. But I think that many, many more people would be willing to say that, okay, well, maybe romantic love, yes, that exists, but anything resembling our ideals of monogamy are, are a cultural invention. And I think that this is an area where I found your work to be extremely clarifying. I mean, to the extent that even if somebody doesn't agree with the conclusions, I think that just walking through the steps in the way that you do is, is just incredibly clarifying. And I thought that maybe we can try to, try to do that together. So let me ask you, if we, if we break down the components of what would be possible answers to is monogamy natural? I guess the first thing to notice would be that it's easier to ask whether pair bonding is natural than whether monogamy is natural. Now, could you give some examples of what would be an animal that demonstrates pair bonding besides humans and would be an animal that does not? Yeah. Well, first of all, let's define what monogamy is. Mono means one and gammy means spouse, one spouse. Hmm. It does not mean sexual fidelity. And so that in, we use, you know, academics who deal with this, ethologists basically, talk about social monogamy. In other words, socially, they're forming a partnership, a pair bond, which is they build a nest together. Yes. Uh, they protect their young together. They clean up their young together. Uh, they snuggle together. It's a, so, it's a social pair bond. But I mean, so anyway, to answer your question, what kind of animal, other animal is a pair bonding animal? Uh, 3%, only 3% of mammals uh, form partnerships, pair bonds. About 20% of primates do. So probably because so many of them live in the trees, you've got to have somebody take care of those babies or they'll fall out of the trees. Oh, uh, 
uh, and, and, and some of them will have a baby uh, too soon after the last one. So they're always uh, stuck in this thing. But anyway, over 90% of birds form pair bonds. Most birds form a series of partnerships. They meet at a nest. They have their sex. They raise their, they sit on their eggs and they work as a pair to, to raise the young. But when the young fly away, the pair bond breaks up. They do not, for robins, and I would call, I guess you would call them a thrush, but a, a robin. It's a standard American bird. And um, in the spring, they show up, uh, they form a partnership, they raise the babies. But when the babies fly away, they join a large uh, group, um, a flock, and they head down to Mexico for the winter. And then they come back and they may well pair together, but they may not. They may choose a different partner. One might die. One doesn't show up, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a series of partnerships. And that's what you see in most birds, a series of pair-bonded partnerships. So the academic term would be serial monogamy, really serial social monogamy, because the vast majority of the words birds do cheat. And scientists have gone in and taken some of the DNA out of the eggs and find that a, a certain percentage of those eggs are not the, uh, the eggs of the male that is feeding them. So it's, it's, it's serial social monogamy or pair bonding and also clandestine adultery. You know, there actually, before, while we're building up the case for, for, for what is the most natural mating system for humans, in your opinion, uh, could you quickly talk about uh, red foxes a little bit? I found it fascinating. Oh, sure. That's a perfect example. I love writing about these animals. Um, and foxes, like all of the wild, the dogs, the wolves, the coyotes, they all form pair bonds. But um, they're not for life. And foxes are a very good example. Uh, in the breeding season, in the middle of the winter, there's about 20 days in February, and the male can smell the female. She's come into estrus or heat, and um, and he follows her, dutifully follows her, snuggles up next to her. Even when he's hungry, he'll catch a little mouse or something and feed it to her. You know, it's not unlike two people sitting on a park bench, you know, snuggling with each other. And he brings food to her a lot, right? I mean, I remember you said that he might almost almost be in the point of starving because he shares so much of the food with her. Exactly. And they're, they're snuggling, they're charming. And not unlike two teenagers or two old people. I mean, the human brain circuitry for romantic love doesn't die with age. So uh, anyway, uh, and they have their babies. They split the job. Uh, you know, he goes out and collects, you know, food and feeds her. Somebody's got to stick with those babies. That's the way they form parabolism. You see parabonding in species where a female cannot raise her babies by herself. That's the main key to why animals form long-term or short-term partnerships. Because now, for example, a female mouse, a female mouse has very thick milk. And so she can feed those babies herself. The babies conk out from all of this rich milk. She can go feed herself and then come. She doesn't need a partner to help her be young. But among foxes, the milk is very thin. The babies have to be fed all the time. And so somebody's got to stick with them. And at first, it's going to be the female. So the male goes out. He does collect small mammals and feeds his basic wife and, and children. And then as the babies get older, he sticks with the babies. And she goes out and collects larger goodies for the children. But the bottom line is, as the summer wanes and those babies trot on, the pair bond breaks up. They will not stay together through the, for the autumn and until the next breeding season. 
And at that point, they may meet up again. They may not meet up again. So it's a series of a pair bonding or a monogamous relationship. And by the way, you are quite right. I always stick to the word pair bonding because people don't understand the word monogamy. They assume it's fidelity and they assume it's lifelong. No ethologist makes those two assumptions. So, okay, so let's take stock. I mean, first of all, the whole discussion we had about romantic love just demonstrates that we are not like chimpanzees, nor are we like bonobos who right. have a lot of wonderful characteristics, but don't seem to have this long, long-term long relationship. Yeah. They, they have a lot of sex and they have a great sex drive, but, but, they, but there doesn't seem to be these long-term relationships around it. Um, on the other hand, it's not at all clear that the fact that we have pair bonds entails that these have to be lifelong pair bonds. And if I understood, am I, please correct me if I'm paraphrasing wrong here, but you would say that we are not, we're certainly not like chimpanzees and, and bonobos, but nor are we necessarily uh, like swans, at least in prehistory. What's, what you would say is was natural for humans would be to do a little bit of what the foxes are doing, except because human babies require much more care much more prolonged care, it wouldn't be one mating season. It would be something like four years. Yeah. You know, I was really wondering why we divorce. Um, that's what, you know, I had written a whole book on why we why we bothered to pair up at all. And, you know, I, I, I trace that back to the coming down out of the trees, the evolution of standing on two feet uh, to carry sticks and stones and food back to a central location where you could eat unmolested by predators, evolution of, 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 of carrying and walking, I didn't see how a female could have, could have, um, uh, you know, carried sticks and stones and protected herself in the very open environment. She needed a partner to help her at least while the ch while she was carrying a child. You know, four million years ago, a woman's carrying a lot around very dangerous open grasslands with the equivalent of carrying in her arms instead of on her back, the equivalent of a twenty-pound bowling ball. Well, how are you going to protect yourself? So we went over what I call a monogamy threshold, where yeah. it became essential for females and suitable for males, and we evolved the, the long-term brain circuitry for romantic love and attachment. So then I began to think to myself, now, well, hang on here. Why is it that you fall madly in love, you, you, you move in together, you, um, you meld your families, you're natal families, you, you know, you build a lot of friends. Why do we divorce? I mean, why do we do it? So I decided I would look at divorce around the world. And I went to the demographic yearbooks of the United Nations and they, from 1947 to 2011, uh, data on marriage and divorce. And what I found in 80 cultures around the world is three things. People uh, tend to divorce in their middle 20s, around age 25, 26, maybe gotten a little late, later now. Uh, was and, and, and the big thing is with, with one child. People with no children divorce a lot. People with one child really divorce quite a bit. Hmm. And then the more children you have, the less likely you are, you are to divorce. But this was very standard to see a large number. I can't remember the data right now. It's in my book, Anatomy of Love, but I haven't talked about this. What's nice about you is we're really talking about something that I, that is that that I've cared about forever, and most people don't ask me. <laughs> They're in the family and the pandemic and all that, which is perfectly fine. I've got a lot of data on it, but the bottom line is, this was very special to me. Around the world, if you're going to divorce, you tend to divorce uh, uh, between the the uh, between the third and fourth year of marriage, and uh, often with a single child and in your middle twenties. 
And I thought to myself, I was horribly disappointed because I thought to myself, oh, well, there's this seven-year-ish. Wouldn't it be logical to, to, to divorce after you've had two children so you have replaced yourselves uh, and the second child is out of infancy? Why do people divorce around the fourth year of marriage rather than the seventh? And it suddenly occurred to me. I remember where I was standing. I was reaching over an hors d'oeuvre tray <laughs> up in Columbia at a, at a conference. And it suddenly occurred to me, hang on, Helen. Maybe we were originally built, predisposed millions of years ago to form a partnership and stay together only through the infancy of one child yes. rather than two. What the fox is. Yeah, yeah they'll, one litter. They have one litter, so it's more than one child. Yes, one litter. Uh, and it suddenly occurred to me, oh, four years is the period of time in hunting and gathering societies that it takes to, to nurse a child until it's walking and can join a multi-age playgroup. So both parents are a little bit more uh, able to move on if they can, because the whole group can take care of the child. And the advantage of that millions of years ago is they would go on, find a new partner and, and, and have more babies and create more genetic variety in their young. And in a very unstable environment, which a lot of our past was, it would probably be adaptive to have children by more than one partner. I mean, with one partner, the child is going to be very well coordinated and have good eyesight. With the next one, the child's going to have a wonderful sense of humor and get everybody doing things their way, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, even today, you know, I'll give, give a speech at a conference and a woman or man will come up to me and say, oh, I was a failure uh, at love. And I say, oh, what do you mean? And they'll say, well, I don't know. I mean, I had three wives or, or I had three husbands. And my first question is, oh, how many children did you have? And they will say, oh, I had uh, two children with the first wife and, and one with the second. And from a Darwinian perspective, that is adaptive. This concept of serial partnerships for millions of years would have enabled our forebears to create more genetic variety in their lineage, leaving in people today this predisposition for restlessness and long partnership. One theme, though, that is important is to distinguish between what is you know, good from the, from the macro Darwinian perspective to the individual and what is good for the individual within their actual, uh, for their happiness, for the things that they desire for. And I think that one of the sad things is that um, I don't know if, if the divorce pattern in hunter-gatherer communities today is exactly uh, this kind of a predictable after four years, they probably break up. But what I do remember from looking at some of the stats is that divorce is very common there. Uh, it's not at all the kind of a big deal. Very common. They um, apparently have two or, two or three husbands during the course of their lives. I think here's the thing, that that's all well and good when you have the kind of community structure that hunter-gatherers live in where it is not a great burden on the children. And I think that one of the kind of tragedies of modernity is that we have created a situation where, um, I mean, some of the reasons that uh, lifelong bonding has become socially the norm are, are the uglier ones that you already hinted at when talking about um, how agriculture uh, made women less powerful, made women more the property of men, etc. But I mean, there is also like from, from, a, from a very modern contemporary perspective, it just isn't as easy to break up and yeah. have kids not notice it in a sad way that it is an undergathering community where uh, the cooperative childcare is the norm. You know, the, the, the uncles and the aunties are there and probably the mom and the dad are still there and, you know, okay, now they're not together. I mean, it's not that big of a deal, which can be a huge deal. 
in 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 the kind of more isolated nuclear families that we live in nowadays, and it could put a terrible burden on the children. And I think that kind of is one of the one of the tragedies. I think is that I I really appreciated this realization that no divorce is not unnatural. It's not just a product of the 20th century uh, hedonism. But on the other hand, what is a product of, of 20th century is the situation where divorces are so so difficult for the children. Well, first of all, it's difficult for everybody. It's not just the children, but difficult for everybody. And I just want to say, I'm not in the good-bad business. I'm in the business of trying to understand why people do what they do. So I never use what you should do, what's good, what's bad, et cetera. But you, you, you touch on very important points. In hunting and gathering societies, they lived in these little groups of probably about um, uh, 25 individuals. Then they would join other bands at, at the dry season, et cetera. And um, sure, there were an awful lot of people to take care of the of the children af- after they were out of infancy. The other thing is in hunting and gathering societies, the children, a child is already part of a particular clan. Hmm. And so nobody's going to have any fight about who owns the children or where the children will live. So that's number one. Number two, they don't, don't have any property. So they don't have to fight over who gets the dog and the cat, who gets, a, who gets the, the cooking utensils, who gets the this and that. I mean, no, the men don't want a digging stick and the women don't know how to do a bow and arrow. I mean, so they don't have all that property. So there's no question about it that the, the cultural paraphernalia uh, that comes along with uh, divorce and honey-gathering society is vastly reduced. But if you read ethnographies, and I, right behind me, you can see a whole list of them back there. Uh, divorce is no easier than it is today. People fight. They kill each other. Uh, everybody gets involved. And it can be extremely disruptive. Now, I think, you know, I've read about divorce all my life, and I think one of the best summary feelings, when you take a look at hunter-gatherers around the world, the feelings about divorce are summed up, were summed up in a book about the Mongol people of Siberia. And they said, two people cannot get along harmoniously together. They had better live apart. And that's what an awful lot of people with little amount of property would feel because they can't afford to disrupt the entire community with people fighting and pushing and yelling and threatening each other. So bottom line is for millions of years, anthropologists do feel that people did have about two to three long-term partnerships, marriages. And of course, we still have that today. And just like you said, it's an issue of property. You know, it's very hard to divorce. It's always hard psychologically for everybody. But the amount of property, the amount of, of financial issues, and the lack of support for children is certainly there. But I would like to say something very positive about the future. Everybody's so glum about it. I think that um, we're heading towards a relative family stability. As I say, I have data on 55,000 Americans. And uh, 89% of, of singles today do believe that when you find the right person, you can remain married for life. But what's most important to me is what happened during this pandemic. A bottom line is Cupid beat COVID. What I mean is as much as those awful things that happened during this pandemic, people grew up. I call it post-traumatic growth. And in 2019, before this pandemic, I asked the question to 5,000 singles, every age, every background, would you want to marry somebody would you want to meet somebody who wants to get married? 58% of singles in 2019 said, yes, I'd, I'd like to meet somebody who wants to marry. In 2021, as the pandemic was winding down, 
I asked the same question. Would you like to meet somebody who wants to marry this time rather than 58% saying yes, 76% said yes. Hmm. You can't lock up people for two years and let them out and think they're the same. Bad boys are out. Bad girls are out. 70% of men want to meet and settle down with somebody within the next year. 60% of women do. The most likely to want to find a long-term committed partnership are the very young people of reproductive age. Gen Z says that 81% of them uh, want to find somebody in the next uh, year and 76% of millennials. These are people of reproductive age and they want to meet somebody who wants to marry. They now want to meet somebody who is the same level of education, uh, who makes the same amount of money, who has a successful career. It's a The young today are very serious. These are not lollygagging around. And even, you know, they, they do their friends with benefits, certainly. And when I asked the question, have you ever had a friends with benefits relationship turn into a long-term partnership? And 45% said, yes, it's just a new way of meeting, a new way of getting to know you. But we are not only predisposed to settle down, but because of this dreadful pandemic, uh, singles have sobered up. And I think well, it's one of the reasons that I think we're going to relative family stability. I call it slow love. Uh, not only are they interested in settling down, but they're doing it very methodically. You know, in my day, uh, 60s and 70s, people were marrying in their very early 20s. Now they're married in their very late 20s or, or early 30s. There's this long period of what I call the pre-commitment stage in which they're getting to know themselves. They're trying people out. They're getting rid of what they don't want. And they are trying again. And there's a great deal of data, not only in the demographic yearbooks of the United Nations, but in a, in a study of 3,000 Americans, that the later you marry, the more likely you are to stay married. And this is exactly what we are seeing. We're not only looking for stable partnerships because of this pandemic, but we are marrying them much later. Both of those trends uh, suggest that we could be heading for relative family stability. Yeah, I love the idea that uh, the kind of casualness of modern dating and sex life is not, it's not necessarily the same as lack of caution in the sense it is actually a source of caution. That's right. They want to try, they want to learn, they want to experience, and they're not going to settle down with the first one. And I think a statistic that was very surprising at first, but that I think makes all the sense when I thought about it was that, that the Bible Belt in, in the US has a higher divorce rate than the, than the kind of liberal coastal areas. Because, because they, much, they marry much earlier and the later you wed. I mean, there's so much data on this. A recent study came out of 3,000 Americans. And if you marry after one year of courtship, between the first and second year, uh, you're 20% less likely to divorce. And if you marry uh, after three or more years of courtship, you're 39% less likely to divorce. Mm -hmm. The other thing that points to the marital stability down the road is that they're meeting on the internet as opposed to off the internet. And there was a very interesting study, came out of the University of Chicago a few years ago, and it basically said that if you met somebody on the internet that you married, as opposed to off the internet, you were less likely to divorce. Really? And I thought to myself, why would that be? What, if it, what, what difference does it make if you met in, a, in an airport or a coffee shop? So I did my own study, uh, supported by Match, and I looked at 5,000 people, not match members, and I compared the people who met their last first date on the internet as opposed to people who met their last first date off the internet. 
And as it turns out, people who met on the internet as opposed to off the internet are more likely to want a committed long-term partnership. And what's important about that is today, 40% of singles met their last first date on the internet. Only 25% met through a friend, less than 10% met in a bar, et cetera. So not only are we marrying much later, which I call slow love, which is going to lead towards family stability, but we're also meeting on the internet, which is leading to family stability. And I think the third very important piece of information is that, you know, we are shedding our agrarian back. We, in front of our eyes, you know, the concept of virginity at marriage, uh, the men as the head of the household, arranged marriages, these are going off the globe. They're going. We're seeing the huge trend. By the way, the most modern trend is affecting love it is not technology. That's just the newest way to do the same old thing. What's really new is that women are piling back into the job market and becoming better educated and being, they can now be picky and marry later mm. and marry for companionship instead of money. So it's those three things, meeting people on the internet, slow love, marrying later, and women becoming you know fully employed and companions in partnerships. I think they're all going to lead to relative family stability. You're right that there is probably no single tool in human history that wreaked such between women and men or stimulated so many changes in human patterns on sex and love as the plow. <laughs> you read my story. I mean, the plow has started getting a lot of bad rap recently and for good reasons. I mean, I'm like, I, I think so as I've understood it is that if you, um, uh, if you do agriculture, especially if you do it with a plow, it requires a lot of upper body strength, which is the main sex difference between between men and women when it comes to physical physical capacity is upper body strength that is linked to testosterone in puberty. And that with the emergence of plow emerges the reliance on men, on the women rely on their husbands and uh, therefore divorce becomes basically impossible because where are you going to, I mean, you need a new husband immediately because you're not going to be using that plow yourself. Uh, and and so you say that that's actually the origins of, the, of how we went from, well, marriage, is great, pair bonding is great, but you know, you can have a few partners in life to the idea of till death to us part. Well done. Very, very well done. I mean, the bottom line is, you know, man and woman lives on a farm. What well, you, you can't walk out. You can't cut the cow in half and take it with you. You can't cut, you can't take half the wheat field with you. You stick it out. You have to stick it out. It's very much like gibbons, you know, primates. They, they live in the trees and they form lifelong partnerships. And they do that because they live in the trees of, of, of Indonesia and, and they live in little territories where there's a certain number of fruit trees. And they basically farm those fruit trees. They stick there. They protect the fruit trees. The male protects other males from coming in and copulating with the female. The female protects the male from other females coming in and stealing the territory, etc. This is pretty much like living on the farm. And they're lifelong pair bonding creatures because they are stuck in individual small territories where you can't go, where you can't leave. Whereas, you know, in our modern world, you can divide up a $10 bill or a, 10, or a euro, for God's sakes, and it's liberated the, you know, it's liberated single. We're, you're talking to an optimist. You're talking to a high dopamine woman. <laughs> I mean, you were once called America's last optimist, I remember. <laughs> oh, you're really, that's how lovely that you've done your homework here. Thank you. 
And I think that's good. I mean, I, I regard myself as a realist. I regard myself as somebody who, you know, sees everything squarely and, and can call the punches out accurately. But um, well, the beauty of today is we don't have the arranged marriages. But the, a lot of the world does have arranged marriages still. But the bottom line is, even in, in places with arranged marriages, the young man or the young woman can say no. Uh, there's almost nowhere where it's child brides these days, but not much. But the bottom line is you can be, you can express your sexuality and your romance and your feelings of attachment in the way you want to. It's not a cookie cutter world anymore. Now, for example, I got married a couple of years ago. Now I'm in my seventies, but I got married to a magnificent man, uh, you know, uh, two years ago. Congratulations. Thank you. And I said, I'll be, I'll be happy to marry you, but I'm not moving in. And, uh, and we have what I call LAT, living apart together. So he has his home up in the Bronx, and I've got my home and office in Manhattan. And um, uh, we go back and forth. But two or three nights a week, I'm here by myself. And it gives me the opportunity to go to bed just when I feel like, eat what I feel like, go out with my girlfriends to the theater, which I'm hooked on, etc. And he, he's a big reader. And so he likes to be at home reading constantly. We can now make the kinds of partnerships we want to. So, and we can marry later. We got a lot of choices on these internet dating sites. Too many choices. That's the big problem with the dating sites. People binge and that doesn't work. The brain is not built for binging. But I see not only the liberation of women in our modern culture, but the liberation of men too. Hmm. When women take on more roles, men can take on more roles. There's more men who are single fathers. There's more men who can marry later. They've got a companion who's going to bring in money as well as food. I think it's a wonderful time for love. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a takeaway. I guess one thing we probably should uh, address is the, whether or not it is natural, quote, unquote, for humans to have a three, four year marriage, then have a one, have one child and then divorce. Uh, it's certainly not necessarily what we want, all, most of us, not for ourselves, not for our friends, not for our partners. Um, I think that one thing that I really appreciate about your attitude is the view that a lot about our so-called casual modern dating culture actually is just peeling, peeling back 10,000 years of farming history. So it's not something new, it's just getting back to the old. That's an important thing you said. You just said something really important. We're moving forward to the past. Hmm. We're moving forward to the lifestyle of our hunter-gatherers, gathering ancestors. And I think that's highly compatible with the human spirit. But anyway, I just want to make sure you know how smart you are. Well, thank you. But I think that the worry is that let's bracket aside the question of how many hunter-gatherers actually do divorce after three to four years. Let's leave aside the question of how difficult it is for their children, for their themselves psychologically. It certainly is very difficult in the modern world. And we don't want that to be the norm. I think that what we want there to be is uh, much more liberty in people uh, leaving very bad marriages. And also, uh, uh, let, me, uh, let me say I want. So what I would want to see in the future is more freedom for people to leave bad marriages, much more liberty for people to explore, especially in their early days, do the slow love that you talk about so beautifully. But if we want a long-term satisfying marriages, I mean, you've studied old couples who are still in love could you talk a little bit about that? And could you give some tips to those people who don't want to fall into this natural pattern of having a divorce three to four years into their marriage yeah. and leave one child? I don't think anybody wants to divorce. You know, it's amazing how people 
will say, oh, well, if you make divorce easier, then all, everybody's going to do it. That's not the way the human brain works. People walk out of relationships because they really are bad. It's right. interesting because Andrew Cherlin is a wonderful sociologist. And in one of his books, you know, in the past, um, you know, the whole concept was to stay married for the children no matter what. And he writes about the fact that, you know, uh, I hope I'm representing him right. It's been a little while since I read his book. But, uh, uh, you know, it's much worse for children to stay in a marriage where they come home from school and, you know, mother's got a black eye and is bleeding badly in, in, in the bathroom and dad is on the couch completely drunk. And so, you know, what children need is a stable world with people who can trust, they can trust and some sort of system, regular system for their childhood. And if that is, if it's better to be divorced and, you know, all, than to marry. And I think most Americans are coming around to that, that sometimes it's better to divorce yeah. simply because it, it's going to create a more stable environment for everybody involved. But what's the Helen, what's the Helen Fisher formula for, for those who want to understand what what a scientist who studied the anthropology, the neuroscience, read about the psychology, have done huge, huge studies on, on really, really representative samples of, of American population. What, what does it take to maintain a good marriage? Not just maintaining it for the kids' sake if, you're, if they have violence, but preventing the violence from ever occurring, from having satisfaction, from not having extramarital affairs. What, what's the recipe? If that's what people want to do, what would you tell them to do? Okay, so I will go to what the brain says. Now, there's some wonderful psychologists like John Gottman who would say, don't be critical, don't show contempt, don't be defensive, and don't be, uh, and don't be stonewalling. So it's okay, psychology. This is what the brain says. So I and my colleagues put 15 people who were in long-term, extremely happy marriages and they all would walk into the lab and say, I'm still in love with my partner. Now, these people were all married an average of 21 years. Most of them had adult children. They were all in their 50s and 60s. They would come into the lab and say, I'm still in love with her. I'm still in love with him. Not just loving, but in love. So we decided we would put them in the brain scanner because people don't believe you can remain in love with somebody long term. We put them in the scanner. Sure enough, we found activity in the same brain region, the ventral tegmental area, linked with feelings of intense romantic love. We found activity in, in a brain region linked with deep attachment. We found activity in a brain region linked with the sex drive. So all three of the basic brain systems were active when they looked at a picture of their sweetheart. But then we looked at people who scored, among these people, those who scored very high on our happiness test. We give them all kinds of questionnaires before they go into the machine. And... We the way, at before you say that, can I just point out that I think it's 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 really striking finally because do I remember correctly that the activity in these areas was equally good than than for those who, who had just fallen in love that 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 the brain was able to sustain that same level of 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 response after twenty five years of marriage. I mean that's fascinating. It is in the long term love. Yes, we found activity in the brain region linked with intense romantic love. And with deep feelings of attachment, definitely. But we also found activity in the brain region with calm and pain suppression, suppression, which we did not find among those who are very happily and married, very intensely married, only a few months. I mean, this is and great it, news. This is great. Yeah. It means that it can just get better. <laughs> news gets better because uh, we take we took a look at those who are very happy because you give a whole lot of questionnaires before you put somebody in a brain scanner. I mean, this is an enormous operation, and 
those who were long-term married and extremely happily married, still madly in love, deeply attached, sex drive was cranking along, we found activity in three brain regions among these long-term happy marriage. A brain region linked with empathy, a brain region linked with controlling your own stress and your own emotion, and a brain region linked with what I call positive illusions, the ability to overlook what you don't like about somebody and focus on what you do. Hmm. So you asked me what makes a long-term happy marriage from the neural perspective. I would say express empathy daily, control your own stress and your own emotions daily, overlook what you don't like and focus on what you do daily, those three. And I would also, in my case, I would think you should also um, keep all three of these basic brain systems, sex drive, romantic love, and attachment cooking along. And to maintain the sex drive, have sex. People say, well, I don't have time. Well, you got enough time to go out for dinner with friends on Saturday night. You got enough time to get your hair done or, or get your work done. You got have, you have time for sex. Make time for sex. Even if you schedule it. Scheduling it can be sort of fun because then you can joke about it beforehand. Uh, and you said I heard you say that it's good for the body. I mean, that it's it's actually very good for the body. Very good for body. You know, when you have sex with somebody, any stimulation in the genitals drives up the dopamine system, can give you feelings of renewed romantic love. With orgasm, there's a real flood of oxytocin linked with feelings of attachment, and androgens go up, testosterone goes up. So if you have sex, you're going to want more sex. As these people get out of the habit of having sex, and so it declines. So have sex regularly. So that's also having sex with uh, your partner increases the endorphins for pain relief. Uh, the pain threshold goes up 10%. You get glowing skin. You look better. What if your partner doesn't want? Well, now you got a problem. That's one of the big problems in therapy mm. is one person wants it more than others. There's no question about that. But if everybody does want it and you're having it regularly, it also boosts the immune system, uh, good heart rate and respiration and blood pressure, promotes sleep, gets oxygen to the brain, elevates mood, uh, and it's certainly good for the muscles and the, everything. So, you know, have sex, number one. Well, first of all, breast, uh, you know, uh, have sex. Keep that sex drive going. Keep love going. And you do that with novelty, novelty, novelty. Do new things with the partner. Now, you don't have to swing from chandeliers. Take your bicycles out to dinner. Go to a different place in the summer vacation. Uh, you know, read a new book together. Cook something different. Learn to dance. Novelty, novelty, novelty drives up the dopamine system and can give you feelings of intense romantic. This is why vacations are so exciting. I mean, I don't know about you, but it's hard to even figure out how you turn on a shower in some of these hotels. And as you're trying to turn on the shower, it's novel. Dopamine is going up. You're beginning to focus. And, you know, and, and certainly also you want to boost the oxytocin vasopressin. You want to keep that attachment going. And in order to keep the attachment going, you know, stay in touch. Kissing drives up oxy oxytocin. Walking arm in arm. Get rid of the two separate chairs in the living room and sit together on the couch. Hold hands when you walk down the street. Figure out how to lie in each other's arms at night or come home from work and lie down holding each other for half an hour and talk about work or whatever uh, instead of sitting across the lobby from each other, for God's sake. 
So basically, it's those six things. Empathy, controlling your own stress and your own emotions. Overlook the negative, focus on the positive, positive illusions. Keep the sex drive going. Novelty, 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 driving up dopamine. And stay in touch for attachment. And there's one more that really interests me. <clears throat> Wonderful study <clears throat> that showed that when you say nice things to your partner, it it's it, it's helpful for their cholesterol, their cortisol, and their blood pressure. But it's also good for yours. <laughs> so I think you the number seven of all these things is say nice things to your partner. There's one thing that I do have to ask uh, when it comes to long-term relationships and maintaining them, which is uh, possible links between antidepressants and uh, long-term love. Could you quickly give your, you know, like two-minute elevator pitch on on your take on the matter and uh, any tips that you have for people who, who who are on SSRI medications at the moment or are considering them? Yeah, I, I really think that there's some people who need these medications to get out of bed and not kill themselves or somebody else. So I, I'm not saying that they're bad for everybody all the time, but I wrote a big academic paper on this uh, and the impact that they can have. And what SSRIs do, not SNRIs, not serotonin and norepinephrine, but solid serotonin, Prozac, Paxil, Lexapro, um, they drive up the serotonin system in the brain. And what they do with when you take a lot of it is they numb the emotions. And when you, what you're doing is you're driving up uh, serotonin, you are reducing dopamine. You're making it less likely to be able to fall in love or to sustain a long-term partnership. Now, there's some people who need these drugs to stay alive, but the bottom line is they are jeopardizing their brain systems for romantic love and deep feelings of attachment. And I have just started my next brain scanning experiment to show this. And what happened, it was about two weeks ago, I got two emails from somebody who said, Dr. Fisher, can't you help? She said, we, there's, there's huge groups now of people. Mm. And as much as 20 years later, they write and they've written to me now and said, I can't feel my vagina, my clitoris. I can't feel it at all. Mm. I can't feel no sensations in my genitals, men as well as women. I, I, feel, I don't feel any real joy or sorrow, I don't feel anything. And they're desperate to have somebody take a look at uh, the impact of these drugs on the brain and on the body. And it's so interesting. I, I made a speech at the annual meeting of the American Psychiatric Association. It was years ago. I was talking about this, and then the New York Times printed something about it, and they, they printed the story of a doctor, an MD, who had heard my lecture from Texas. And he wrote in, he said, you know, I'm a person who does suffer chemically from real depression. And I love my wife and I love my children. And I started taking one of these drugs. And I woke up one morning a few weeks later and I realized, I don't love my wife. I don't love my I don't like anything about any of this. And he said, I felt completely numb. And he said, I began to realize that it was the drug. And he said, and then he writes this in the New York Times. He says, I now um going to not take these drugs when I get seriously depressed because my wife and my children are more important to me. I'm going to go through those depressions because the rest of my life is so essential. I cannot afford to lose it. And the problem with the, these people is that who take these drugs is they stay on them. Now, I can understand taking them 
I got this one letter from a guy and he was doing poorly in school. He was heavily in love with a girl and he started to poorly in school. They put him on one of these drugs. He realized he didn't love the girl. He walked out. He finally got off the drugs almost a year later. His passion for the girl came back in his case. That's lucky. And he grabbed, he, he bought all the roses he could carry in his arms and went over to her house and she opened the door and he said, I think I made a terrible mistake. It was the drugs. Will you take me? And I have almost a foot of single pages of emails from people around the world. Because I mentioned this in one of my TED Talks, and I did write a big academic article about how these drugs can affect not only your sex drive, but your sexual performance Hmm. and your ability to form an attachment to somebody. Quick question. What about SNRIs? Would it just solve problem with SNRIs? I certainly um, uh, I think that they would be much better. Uh, I, I don't study it, and I do need to study it. I've been very involved in, in something else for the many last few years. But uh, now that I've launched this thing with SSRIs, an FMRI, FMRI study, uh, I'm going to have to study up on them. But it's got to be an improvement. I mean, I'm not a doctor. I'm a, I, I'm a PhD in anthropology, so not a doctor. And I hope the people listening really remember that. But the bottom line is just from a purely physiological perspective, um, norepinephrine is very closely related to dopamine. Mm-hmm. And they can both uh, help with sex drive because they can trigger the testosterone system. Even quicker question, how uncontroversial is the link between serotonin and dopamine, this inverse relationship? It's in all the medical textbooks. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with Helen Fisher. I just read it. I've never mm-hmm. studied it myself. I just I just read it in 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 right. medical textbook, and then I read a huge amount about SSRIs. I have huge folders of it, and it makes you calm. That's why people take it. it makes you calm because it's driving up serotonin. And mm-hmm. then you read carefully. And I read one article, and it said it it disrupts exploratory behavior. You're less curious. I mean, it just sounds to me like even without knowing much about the brain, if you're depressed, you don't necessarily want to get rid of your dopamine system that's working properly. Some people need calm. They just need the calm, you know, and they need the calm to sort out the problems without being, you know, uh, I mean, some people will take Wellbutrin instead, which drives up the dopamine system and does not affect the serotonin system. And some people get on the serotonin for a while and They will say, this really worked for me. I was able to put my life back together and I finally got off it. Now I'm happily married. So it's going to be different for different people. But I would just at least have doctors say to the patients, look, there are studies and just have them read my article for God's sakes, so that these people at least know what they're getting into. And some of them will say, I don't care. I don't want to fall in love. I need to be numb. I need to get through this stage in my life because of some horrible thing that's happened to me. I'll get off these drugs and get back, you know, to myself at a later date. And that's that you don't have to make these decisions, but you need to be informed. And what horrified me was two weeks ago when I got two letters from this woman saying, you've got to do something because I'm part of a group and there's these groups all over apparently of people who took these drugs years ago and the numbness never left. They don't feel. Mm. 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 
And I, I wrote my academic article with a guy called, a psychiatrist called Andy Thompson. And um, he once said to me, he said, you know, I know somebody's really in trouble when they come into my office, they're on these serotonin boosters, and they don't cry when their mother died. Mm. I now know they're, they're taking too much of this drug. Mm. Mm. Well, that's um, that's one of the claims that I most hope is not true because it's. Uh, I mean, the amount of people on these drugs nowadays is is it's huge. Oh. It is absolutely huge, and they are not informed about this. No, they're not informed because doctors. I don't. Know, a lot of doctors aren't even familiar with the brain system for romantic love and mm -hmm. attachment. Well, we can end this uh, this somewhat sad caveat, which has a lot of hope, because at least if there's more information, there's more more to be done. Um, before we end, I would like to return a little bit to the more anthropological, evolutionary, anthropological side of things. Uh, I mean, I don't think that we can have really a discussion about anthropology of love without going through a little bit of the kind of variation in human communities around love. So we talked about how romantic love, we find it everywhere, and you find it everywhere where you look, talked about how is, we probably have the wrong picture if we assume that everybody everywhere is in a lifelong monogamous relationship. Most people don't even understand the term monogamy. It's much more complicated. We've heard your theory about serial uh, monogamy with a little bit of adultery on the side being the, probably the most natural historically, prehistorically to humans. But what about when we look uh, into the societies around the world? I mean, one of the claims that people might come back with is to say, yeah, okay, we're not like chimpanzees. We have pair bonding. We're, but, you know, nor are we like foxes. We're like gorillas. We, we build harems. You know, 86% of, 86 of societies, you have, uh, you have polygamy. And uh, I think in most, almost all of these, it's, it's one man being able to have a, a lot of wives, which is, which is what gorillas pretty much do. I mean, they build a harem and then they stay there. Um, you don't regard that as the most, as the, as the best, uh, more, I mean, you don't regard gorillas as the best model for, for what is natural for, for human love. So I think that just returning once more to that topic that we started with, what is the data on different mating systems around the world, monogamy, polygamy, et cetera? And, and how do you, how do you interpret, uh, for example, this gorilla challenge, if we may call right. it that? Okay. Uh, uh, first of all, 86% of world cultures do permit a man to have several wives. But when you look carefully at it, only about 5 to 10% of men actually succeed in having more than one wife. Or even one to I mean, he knows. Yeah, yeah. You got to have a, a lot of chickens, a lot of goats, a lot of cows, a lot of fruit trees, a lot of land, a lot of power in order to have more than one woman share your bed. And when you go into these societies where there are men who have multiple wives, wives fight. Sometimes they try to poison each other's children. It's not a natural pattern. And it's very interesting that, you know, just because these societies permit it, mm. there's various scientists will say, oh, well, this is the norm. It's not the norm. Mm. Even though something is permitted, the vast majority of men do not succeed in having several wives. You've got to have a great deal of power and resources to, to do that. So only about 5 to 10% of men actually end up having several wives. And in parts of West Africa, traditionally, about 25% of men could get several wives. But in those societies, wives fight, etc. And a perfect example uh, occurred to me. I was traveling in the highlands of New Guinea. And in the most 
beat up band. Uh, I went with a b- former boyfriend uh, and uh, we were picked up. Uh, in fact, on that was a tiny little plane flying over the highlands. And there were six of us on the plane. And one guy got in. He was painted all yellow and he car- was carrying a bow and arrow and, uh, and, a, and a six foot plant. But anyway, the bottom line is I, I was traveling in the back of this really beat up van, sitting on an old rusty drum. I could have put my feet right through the floor onto the um, onto the uh, dusty, just the unpaved road. Anyway, there were two men, two Highlanders in the van with me, in the back of the van. My boyfriend at the time was in the front with the driver. Anyway, I asked one of them, who I knew he had three wives. Hmm. And I said to him, I said, how many wives would you like? And uh, there was this long pause. And I thought to myself, well, is he going to say five? Is he going to say 10? Is he going to say 25? And he looked at me and he said, none. (laughs) And bottom line is it's a toothache. And then the guy next to him, he said, what you, you can never have two wives. You either have one wife or three or more. Because when you have two wives, every time you're out of town, that wife knows where you are. (laughs) <laughs> and why get jealous? So the bottom line is, we are not like gorillas. Do you know among gorillas they travel with a harem, and at puberty a male will break off from his main troop unless there's somebody there he can, he can get get as a wife. They move away, and so do the young females, and they'll run into each other in the woods and they'll form a partnership. But if that male gorilla doesn't find a second female, and a third and a fourth, the first one will leave. They are predisposed for polygyny. Hmm. Females want to that. Yes. The females will not tolerate a male to be just monogamous, having just a pair of bonds. They need more females in the group. Whereas among people, yes, societies do permit polygyny, one man and several wives, but wives fight and it can be a real toothache. Now, there's another thing, uh, uh, polyandry, uh, one woman and several husbands. It's very rare for for a Darwinian reason, because a woman can't have a new baby every every time, whereas a man with several wives can have, you know, a, a lot of children all at the same time, a lot of pregnancies all at the same. Women can't do that. So from a Darwinian perspective, it's not very adaptive, and you see it only under particular circumstances. These are really fascinating examples. Could we quickly go through the Tibet one first? Because I would like to talk more about the Alaska one. Maybe I can just paraphrase. Am I correct that there, in in some areas in Tibet, when you have landowning families, they don't want to break up their estates, and therefore they marry all their sons to one wife, so that they will only have one one female producing offspring, which will then inherit that same estate. Very well said, and very concisely, much more concise than mine. Um, yeah, you know, this, the ethnography that I read about it, explaining it, but there's more than that. You know, the oldest son, uh, the young girl comes in, and she's, you know, really the wife of the oldest one, but he's the wife of all three of them. Well, one of them is nine years old. She's not going to have sex with him. And another is a late teenager or so, and then there's a guy in his mid-20s. But, yes, they all marry the same woman because you, you, the, the plots of land are so small that if all three sons where to take a wife and divide mm. up the land. Nobody could even mm. throw it to me. Mm. Too little. So what happens in these things is they all have one social wife, but the younger sons 
will have, you know, uh, women in the village that they have family with, but they don't inherit. So that's, so that's a, a reason for polyandry. On the Northwest coast, it's a very, of Southern Alaska, it's a very different reason. And maybe you want to say it better than I can. <laughs> well, I mean, what I remember is that there you have this situation where the, the, the men typically do the hunting and the fishing. I think it was fishing mainly. It's almost like a blue collar, white collar job division where the men produce the basic goods, but the women have taken the role of the of traders, you know, the white collar workers who are, who, who, right. who are trading these goods, therefore amass more status and wealth. And and there you end up seeing them just having more husbands because that's what you can get when you have status and and and, and money. Is that is that a fair description? It's a perfect description. Yeah, because the men can be gone fishing for quite a long time, and then they come back. They've got all these goods, and you you know, there's a classic a photograph of a woman sitting in the back of the boat, these long boats that all the men are doing the the, the rowing. With all kinds of, they do the, a lot of hunting too, by the way. And so they're trading skins, they're trading oil, they're they're trading blubber, they're trading all kinds of things. And it's the woman who's the trader, and they can get very rich. And there's a lot of people on the planet that would rather share a wife who is rich than marry somebody very poor and living a different environmental life. So yes, so but you do have to have extreme circumstances for polyandry. And you do have to have a whole lot of resources if you're going to collect a lot of wives. So when you, if you were to go around the world counting heads, how many people are in this teepee, in this tenement, in this lodge, in this da 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 the vast majority of both men and women on Earth have one partner at a time. They may have several partners during their life, ferial monogamy, but one partner at a time. One question that I perhaps one of the questions I most wanted to ask is what would be in your opinion, I mean, you've read and as I said, an incredible amount of these ethnographies of love. What, what is the closest that you've come across to a society which would live somewhere along the lines of, of polyamory where it is not a formalized one man can have many wives or one wife can have many men or, or one husband can only have one wife or, 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 or in homosexual cases, one husband can have another husband, but it's always one, one. What would be the closest that you would get to this kind of more open, fluid, you know, there is just, you know, you just do whatever you want. You guys kind of figure it out. Um, if somebody wants to be pair bonded to one, go ahead. If some people want to have a love triangle, go ahead and do it. If some people want to share a bed, the four of them, um, you know, three from one sex, one from another, go ahead and do it. When you read this ethnography, what would be the closest that you get? New York City. <laughs> New York City. What about in traditional societies? Great answer, of course, but what about in traditional uh, Well, you know, in up the Amazon, there are <laughs> some societies where, that have what they call partable uh, paternity. And in those societies, a woman has one social husband, um, but they actually believe that she, in order to get pregnant, she needs the seed of lots of different men. And so it's absolutely common for her to have sex with a lot of different men. And sorry, where where, where do you find the, uh, this? In parts of the Amazon River. Mm, mm, mm. And I don't study partable paternity, but I've I it's it's always fascinated me. But apparently they I and I really there's people that know a lot more about this than Helen Fisher. That's for sure. But just look up partable uh, paternity, and you will find these cultures in the Amazon, and they truly believe that 
in order to get a baby, you need the sperm a lot of, of a lot of different men. And, you know, that's actually rather adaptive when you think yeah. about it. Yeah. Only because if all of the men in the village uh, think that that baby is partially theirs, they're going to spend a lot of time protecting that. I, I was talking about this the other day. I, I was talking about this with my sister, actually, and I said that I think this is one of the best illusions you could have. I mean, this just sounds fantastic. Everybody's in the same team. You know, everybody's everybody's kid. <laughs> they're just there, like, high-fiving each other, and everybody seems to be pretty happy. I don't know if everybody yeah. is happy, but I'm saying that it does sound like an adaptive. That is the point. And I should, re- I've always been tempted. I got to read more about particle paternity because the bottom line is, you know, jealousy is human. I mean, this is a human brain system. I've not ever been able to study jealousy. I'd like to study jealousy, but anything that you feel has some sort of, um, you know, something in the brain. So, so there is some sorts of uh, patterns to, to jealousy and all kinds of other animals are jealous too. So the bottom line is here is where a cultural practice has to supersede a natural human predisposition. Hmm. Culture is very powerful. I mean, we got people who are basically predisposed to be adulterous, settle down on a farm for 10,000 years. You know, we got, we got, um, I mean, we're built to sort of pick our own partners and we got a lot of cultures with arranged marriages. I mean, culture plays a big role. I have to be more interested in the biological basis of behavior, probably because I'm an identical twin. And growing up as a twin, I always knew that there was biology to my behavior. You cannot be an identical twin hmm. without everybody. By the time I'm four years old, people are asking me, you know, do you have your same friends? Do you like the same food? Do you have the same cavities in your teeth? You know, you were, I mean, long before I knew there was a nature nurture issue, I was already engaged in that world. Hmm. And in fact, that's why I went to study love. When I was in graduate school, um, people, they kept on telling all of us that, you know, the mind was an empty slate in which environment, uh, and, you know, inscribed personality. I knew it wasn't true. I knew it because I was an identical twin. And so when it came time to write my PhD dissertation, I thought to myself, okay, Helen, if there's one part of our behavior that would have a biological uh, um, uh, predispositions or biological basis it would have to be our reproductive patterns yes. because as darwin would have said if you have four children and i have no children you live on and i die out no there is this concept of kin selection you're you know you share your dna with relatives and they have babies too but the bottom line is if if our ancestors weren't somehow programmed predisposed to fall in love and form a partnership and raise their ba- raise their babies at a team, they would die out. Mm. But and I guess a really important point there is to remember that there is one thing is what are the traits that evolution has selected for, but another thing, what kind of traits an individual human has. And I think one of the cases that best describes is adopted adoptive parents or, or or people in happy homosexual partnerships are not there in order to play the Darwinian game. I don't think any of us is explicitly there in order to play the Darwinian game. And I think that's, first of all, just a good reminder so that people don't interpret us in the wrong way. But I also wanted to ask about homosexuality. What do you think? Uh, homosexual love, you said, you know, it looks exactly the same in the brain scanner than heterosexual love. Um, yeah. That's great. Um, 
why do you think it evolved? I mean, this might go into the realms of pure speculation, but um, yeah, yeah. What, what's the what's the natural history of homosexuality in humans? That's one of the first questions for years. People ask me. I could count on that when I made a speech. Now they ask about the future because I, you know, I'm chief science advisor to Max. But uh, it was always why why homosexuality, and this is the things that I know. Um, there was a wonderful study of Hawaiians, and one of the hypotheses was that. Okay, um, gay men, for example, uh, won't have their own children, um, but apparently they give more resources and education and energy to their um, their relatives' children. And they did were able to prove that in a Hawaiian community that uh, gay men did expend more of their money on their sisters' children, um, and their cho- their sisters do share their some of their DNA probably about 50% yeah. of it. So the bottom line is they are helping to reproduce some of their DNA simply by giving their resources and energy to their kin. You don't think that it could be just um, a kind of benign byproduct in the sense that we we evolve with this deep, passionate longing for, for, for that one mate. And in some, well, it's not like we are explicitly playing an evolutionary game. And for some people, it just happens to be that you know, the parameters of what kind of a mate they prefer are very loose, so they are bisexual for some people. It's tightly in the realm that the kind of like Darwinian demon would want it to be. And in some others, it's just pretty far from what the Darwinian demon might be. And that's fine because evolution is not perfect. It's a, uh, it, it's not crafting us to be, you know, perfect replicators. Yeah. It's just giving us a raw template of genes that, that build proteins that build an organism. So you don't think that that would be uh, enough to say? Um, this is what the data is, um, that um, uh, gay men expend more of their resources on their sister's children. So that's one thing. The other thing that I read was some time ago is that about 20 uh, uh, percent of, of, of gay men ended up having children anyway. Hmm. And about 40 percent of gay women tended to have children anyway. So that's direct selection. Hmm. And so basically it wasn't weeded out. Hmm. Uh, yeah. No problem okay. for the Darwinian demon. Yeah, from a Darwinian perspective, it, it it wasn't. I mean, you know, people who you know, babies that 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 come out of the womb with two necks, are weeded out. Uh, and but other other biological uh, compositions in the brain aren't weeded out because they're not really deleterious. Mm-hmm. Either you know, you find homosexuality even in birds. You find mm-hmm. it in ducks. You find it in horses. You find it in cats. You find it in chimpanzees. And so, I mean, certainly find it in bonobos. Oh, absolutely. They're very sexy. Yes, yes. But I would get maybe call them pansexuals, I guess. They they, they don't seem to. Yeah, well, they're pansexuals. Um, and it's quite adaptive. Uh, that's the way they make friends. Yeah. And that's the way they create, uh, you know, community stability. Yeah. And if things are adaptive. So I can't say that homosexuality is unadaptive. I would think that, you know, anybody looks carefully at it that, I mean, you know, there's been enough. Darwinian payoffs mm-hmm. that it hasn't been selected against. Yes, and yes. of course these days everybody can express anything they want. So I stick with my thing. Where do you see more? What was your question? Where do you see more sort of all of the experiments? New York City, maybe Helsinki. I don't know. <laughs> I think New York, maybe even more. Uh, <laughs> but I don't think it's actually just about the culture. I think that I mean already Bertrand Russell said that one of the reasons that. Uh, I think in 1940s or something, he wrote a book called Marriage and Morality. And I think I, I read it as a young kid and I 
and I was getting interested in philosophy. And I think that the one takeaway I took from the book was that I never took contraception seriously enough as a, as a, as a culture shaping mechanism. I mean, you, you hear about the pill being discussed as, a, as part of the feminist movement, but I also think that one of the reasons why something like New York City polyamory might not have existed to the extent that you're right, that it hasn't quite existed before might be because, well, before having good quality contraception, it's a pretty serious deal. <laughs> Who's, who's okay. made, whom maybe we now live in a truly new era in a sense that, you know, it's pretty safe, at least in New York City. You know? But don't forget, I mean, the Oneida, uh, Oneida uh, community up in upstate mm. New York, and there was 150 of them, and everybody was allowed to copulate with anybody, and you weren't allowed to pair off. And by the way, uh, it didn't work. It didn't work, but they were not allowed to pair off. I think that the idea of the polyamorous communities would be that, no, you're absolutely allowed if you want to, but you don't have to. Like, we're not saying that this is what you have to do. Right. Well, we're at a time when people can do a lot of experimenting, but even in a world with all of these experimenting, people fall in love, they form partnerships, they raise their babies as a team. It will survive as long as we survive as a species. We are built to love. <laughs> well, that's a wonderful place to start and to close. Is there anything that you would have wanted to discuss that we haven't had time yet? Well, you're absolutely incredible. Uh, no, and I really should go on some other things in my day, but you're charming and, and, and absolutely fascinating. And it's beautiful to see a person who's really done the reading. You know, that's lovely. <laughs> I haven't had a conversation like this, maybe since Krista Tibbet, but she didn't get into it the way you did. <laughs> Thank you. So much. That means a lot. That means a lot. Thank you so much. I have one final question, which I like to ask all guests. After a long career of studying the human animal, what do you think has changed most in your thinking about, you know, us, about what kind of animals are we? Mm -hmm. I'm sure lots of things. I mean, uh, you know, I, I lie in bed and I think to myself, you know, what do I believe today that I won't believe in five years? I'm always wondering, is this crazy? You know, um, but one thing that happened to me recently, you know, I've... Um, I intellectually understand romantic love and attachment, and not only the brain circuitry, but around the world, the evolution of it, written six books on it, written a great deal out now, most recently on personality. But I never wanted to marry. I always thought to myself, it's just a sheet of paper. I've always sort of slept with my sneakers on, thought to myself, well, it's, it's easy to get out if things are not, a, you know, and I've always <clears throat> had a very long-term relationship with one man uh, over 20 years and then another for about 20 years. And, but I never wanted to marry them. And I always had this idea that a marriage license should be like a driver's license with an expiration point, expiration date. And that way, if you didn't like your partner, you didn't have to fight about anything. It was just going to naturally expire did like your partner it would it, it would keep you on a daily level of of, of 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 keeping it going and it was about a year ago and i had done a study of this uh on my singles in america study at match and i asked people would you like to have a marriage license like a driver's license honest that almost nobody said yes thought to myself well why is this so anyway, I was doing a piece of television. It was about a year ago. And then my new husband and I went out for dinner. And we were sitting there in a little Mexican dump. 
restaurant, delicious food. And I was telling him about the fact that, you know, during this TV interview, I had talked about a marriage license like a driver's license. And he looked at me and said, do you still believe that? And at that moment, I said, no, I don't believe it. What was I thinking? And I finally, intellectually, I've, I've always understood the sex drive. I've always understood romantic love. And I've always intellectually understood profoundly deep attachment. And now I finally understand that too. Not only intellectually, but emotionally. That's something that changed. I look at men's wedding rings, particularly men's wedding rings, and I feel a sense of cosmic understanding of them that I never would have had. Professor Helen Fisher, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you for sticking with us until the very end of this conversation. If you enjoyed it, please consider sharing it with a friend. You can either uh, share it with them directly or just mention next time you met that uh, you, you heard something they might enjoy. If you have any thoughts about the, this episode, other episodes, things that we should cover in the future, things that I might have screwed up, things that uh, you, you want to hear more about, or just want to say hi, please feel free to drop me a line. You can do it either via the podcast website or sending me an email to makala.ilaria.outlook.com. It's always a pleasure to hear from listeners. But that's all for now. Until next time, take care.